This morning I'd like to begin by reading a couple of verses from Psalm 86. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify thy name forever. For thy loving kindness towards me is great, and thou hast delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Our Father, we're just grateful to you that you are the one who unites our hearts to fear you. You're the one who teaches us truth and gives us assurance in our hearts that we are the children of God. And Father, as we face this, this great cataclysm that seems to be impending as, as the um, events of end times seem, at least uh, from our perspective, maybe to be congealing, we know, Lord, that it is as we rest in you that we have peace. Even as we looked at in class last time, the, the, the shalom of God is, is there for us no matter what the circumstances might be. And our Father, I just pray that each and every day we will get up in the morning and commit ourselves into your peace for that day and for your strength to live in accordance with your word. Father, I just want to pray for the world scene. I pray specifically for the leadership of our country, for the military that is operating against the, the uh, Taliban there in Afghanistan. Father, we heard yesterday of a missile that went astray. And oh, Father, we know that you can prevent such tragedies. And, and we pray, Father, that you will be there and you will uh, allow the forces that are evil to be crushed and that somehow you will be magnified and glorified in what is being accomplished there. And Father, we ask, Lord, that our president will have the mind of the Lord in every decision that he makes. And we pray that you will glorify your people who are following by your name. You will honor them uh, before the world, even as we're hearing so much of how wonderful Islam really is. Father, we pray that that will not confuse people to realize that it is a diabolical religion that perverts the truth and leads men and women straight into perdition. Father, we ask that uh, you will uh, bring about your purpose in all of this. And Father, we pray that today our reactions and our attitudes will be of Christ and that you will guide us now in our study of your word, give us insight and understanding according to your divine purpose. In Christ's name, amen. We're beginning the 27th chapter of 1 Samuel. So I'd like to read the first seven verses this morning. If you've ever been told that there's something wrong with you if you talk to yourself, it is scriptural. In the first verse we read, Then David said to himself, <laughs> Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. What he's saying to himself is not such a good message, but he is talking to himself. There is nothing better than for me to escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul will then despair of searching for me anymore in all of the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with, their, with his household, even David and his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. 
For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Israel to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. There's a time gap between chapter 26 and chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. It's a, it's a, it's a time gap that we do not know the length of but possibly, certainly many months, and, and possibly even a year or more in duration. And verse 4 in this particular passage that we read this morning implies that Saul has reneged on his promise. He said after, he, after David uh, took away his spear and his water jug, we remember we looked at that the last part of chapter 26, David had penetrated to the very heart of Saul's camp, and the whole camp was asleep, 3,000 men. And he and Abishai crept in there, took the spear, took the water bag, and crept back out of the camp. And then David stood on a nearby hill and shouted back to Abner, saying, you're, you're worthy of death because you didn't protect your king because an assassin was near at hand. And that whole encounter where Saul finally comes out and acknowledges that David could have killed him, but David didn't. And David, of course, had proof because he was holding Saul's spear and Saul's water bag. And, and Saul, like he did after the En Gedi experience, was shamed into admitting that he was wrong and that David was right and uh, calling off the hunt and, and going back to Gibeah. But he's back again. Uh, he, he's obviously gotten over his shame and, and is, is, is uh, ir, irresponsible and uh, you know, his hatred of David, which is without basis, has driven him to pursue David again. So as you look at this passage, we find the humanness of David being clearly illustrated. It's possible for us, especially if what we know about the Old Testament is mostly something we, we got in Sunday school when we were just children, that we have put uh, some of these men and women of the Old Testament so high above us that we don't see how we could relate to them. But as you really study the Old Testament, uh, we discover how human they really were and, and how their feet were as much of clay as are ours. And so in this first verse, we, we read David, as we saw, David was speaking to himself and he said, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. He'd had a great victory over Saul. Saul had admitted, you will, have, you will win in the end, David, you will win, and, and, and Saul left the scene. And David had publicly proclaimed at that time that he had faith in the protection and the deliverance of God, and that God would fulfill his promise to him. But as we look at this passage, we find that Saul's relentless pursuit has driven David into depression. Except for those two brief periods of hell. But the incessant nature of the persecution, I think, had driven him to the place where he just couldn't see how it could possibly be true or, or how it could possibly come about in his life. I, I think all of us have been, or if we haven't, we probably will be, at that place where we just don't see how we can take another step, how we can move for, forward in the Lord uh, uh, at all anymore because we're, uh, we're against a wall. And, and we're discouraged and we're depressed and, and we just don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think David saw the light here at the end of the tunnel. I think he felt much, I think he felt much like Elijah did 
after he'd had that great victory on Mount Carmel. And then Jezebel had said, you're a dead man. And so he runs off into the wilderness and ends up on, on Mount Horeb in the Sinai Peninsula. And he says, when, the, when God speaks to him, says, I'm the only prophet left and they want me dead. Whole articles have been written on Elijah. Uh, I've, I've even seen an article about pastor burnout, which was based on <laughs> this passage relative to Elijah. And, and I think in this way, we might have anointed king burnout here in the case of David, or at least uh, quarry burnout, <laughs> someone who's been running from pursuit for so many years. Most of us can rise to the occasion if something comes at us hard and quick, but it's the relentlessness of something, the, saw, the drip, you know, like the Chinese water torture where they, they, they tie you down and just have water dripping on your head one little drop at a time, day after day after day. And I'm told that by the time you get towards the end of that, it sounds like an explosion in your head when that little old drop of water hits the top of your head. The, this, this constantness of it. Scripture tells us that we are to live by faith and not by sight. But that is not easy. It's not easy because sight is something most of us have, if not physically with our eyes, at least by our other senses, we have a sense of sight. We have a sense of this physical reality. Every day, the physical reality of our lives is in our face. You wake up in the morning and, oh, this hurts and that hurts and you're worried about this. And there's always something in our face about the physical life. But the spiritual life is more elusive. Living by faith, I think, can only become a reality by the work of God's Spirit. We can't conjure it up. I can't get up in the morning and say, I'm living by faith today, no matter what. Because for breakfast, I'll foul up somehow, I'm sure. It's a moment-by-moment -moment situation. And we have to ask God for tenacity to cling to the Word, because in the Word we have life and we have hope and we have deliverance. I'd like to read a passage in Hebrews, just a couple of verses actually, that are not unfamiliar to you. In Hebrews chapter 13, we read these words at verse 5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently confidently say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? And right now, as a nation, isn't that what we're worried about? What man will do to us? What terrorist will fly a plane into a building or blow up a car bomb or send anthrax through the mail? This particular passage in Hebrews is uh, based on the words of Moses, or of the word of the Lord through Moses, Back in Deuteronomy, let me just read the, the source passage for that Hebrew promise. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 at verse 6, this is Moses speaking as he has come to the end of his life. He's 120 years old and he's about the way, uh, to go the way of all men. And he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. 
He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And so as we, as we see the author of Hebrews taking this truth and quoting it again, in the context of the New Testament, we can understand that this isn't just an isolated promise made by one man to one small group of people, and that's all it applies to, but that it is a promise made by God to His people. We're to be strong and courageous. We're to move forward in God's strength. We're not to be afraid of what men will do to us. You know, we as, as God's people should stand strong and be the last to be afraid to get on an airplane, the last to be afraid to just receive our normal mail, because God is, is with us and will keep us and enable us to serve Him as He has called us to do. But of course, David is an example that even godly people can get in a funk. And that's exactly where David was. He was so depressed that he decided to give up hope of, of eluding Saul and of really inheriting the throne, at least at this time. And, and he decides that he's going to flee into the land of the Philistines. That's almost akin to us being so afraid of being attacked of terrorists that we move to Afghanistan. You know? it's, it's almost that same idea. Because David had killed Goliath of Gath. I mean, he's fleeing to Gath again, right? And David had led the army of Israel against the Philistines on repeated occasions. And who knows how many thousands of Philistines David slew. And that's where he's going. His foe and the implacable foe of Israel. One would think that after his previous abortive and humiliating encounter in Gath, you go back to the 21st chapter, and we won't go back there, but you remember he went to Gath once before, and he felt his life was so threatened that he acted the fool, you know, with a slobber dribbling down his beard, and, and the king says, get him out of here, I have enough fools, I don't need another one here in my uh, city. Uh, but now he's considering this as an option again? Most of us would say, this does not seem like rational thinking. And really, of course, it is not. But you and I don't always think rationally. Often we're driven by our emotions. Sometimes we're driven literally because the enemy is speaking so loudly in, in our ears that we're not listening to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. I think this helps us to understand just how desperate David really was here. Well, this isn't just a little depression. This is a major one. He had convinced himself, as, as we read in the verse there, there is no other option for me. There's no other option but to go to Philistia. No other option. You would think the fact that in the 10 or however many years he had been pursued by Saul and Saul had not successfully captured him, that he would recognize that God was keeping him, that God was protecting him. Yet he felt there was no other option. Again, let me re remind you that when we're reading the, the account of God's working in Scripture, I, I think we're reading an account of a mighty spiritual war that is going on. Just like this situation right now involving the United States and terrorism, um, I'm not at all going to say the United States is a godly nation, but there are a lot of godly people in this nation, but it is a spiritual war. It's not just a physical war. And that's why I think we can pray and we can see the hand of God move. Now, maybe these are all parts of the final events that are coming together and Revelation's going to unfold before our eyes here. But nevertheless, God tells us to pray. Just as he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And to us, that seems so absurd. You know, a city that's been at war seems like for almost all of its history and is in a horrible situation right now. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Come on, Lord. Let's pray for something more likely. 
But, but that's not what he says. We're to pray for those things that seem unlikely because he's the God of what? The impossible. Things that we cannot, obviously if we can do it, you know, God doesn't need to do it, right? And so obviously we can't do it. And therefore we need him to do it. We're told in, in this passage that David's thought was that if I go to Philistia and hide there, Saul's going to hear that I'm in Philistia and he'll give up the pursuit and go home. Right? That's what he is thinking. So what is he trying to get relieved from? And that is, of course, this constant pressure of impending capture. That is what he's seeking for immediate relief of his, of his immediate most pressing problem. Were these fears and his consequent actions the work of the Lord in his life? I don't think so. Did God remain faithful to his promise, though? And did God work through the circumstances that David brought into his life in order to accomplish his will? Absolutely. And again, I think that translates into our lives. Sometimes we gum up the works. We do something totally stupid. And we knew at the time that we were doing it. It's stupid. And yet God will take our stupidity and work through it to bring good to our lives and into other lives. God remained faithful. Let, let me read a passage that David wrote, maybe at this time, maybe at another time, we don't know, but it, it might be a passage <laughs> we relate to uh, more frequently than we wished. Psalm 38. Psalm 38, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath. Chasten me not in thy burning anger. For thine arrows have sunk deep into me, and thy hand has pressed me down. There's no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head, and a weight, a, a heavy burden, they weigh too heavily, as a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before thee. My sighing is not hidden from thee. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that, has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I'm like a dumb man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I'm like a man who does not hear, in whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in thee, O Lord, thou wilt answer, O Lord my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me. Who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me? For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. But my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully, and those who repay evil for good. They oppose me because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Do we resonate with that? Are these not thoughts we have from time to time? Maybe more often than we wish. I think David's depression is not unique. I think all of us at times are in a situation where we feel like God is far from us. 
and the situation is hopeless. Now, if we spend much time right now, for example, digging into the situation in the world, we're going to find that we dig a very deep hole. I mean, the situation is, is, is far more serious than we even think at times. Let me just read a couple of words that this uh, Woodbury, he, he says, speaking of the uh, Islamic people, he says, the militants, however, base their position on the Quranic verses like, fighting is prescribed for you. Fight in the cause of God those who fight you and slay them, for tumult and oppression are worse than slaughter. Fight them until there is no more persecution and oppression, and there prevails justice and faith in God. Fight and slay the infidels. Th these are all Quranic quotations. The true believers are those who strive with their lives for the cause of God. And, and then he says, militant, militants like bin Laden use the words I have highlighted in their rationale. Fighting and slaying is prescribed by God. Americans cause oppression, injustice. They are infidels. Although he says the Quran, whenever they talk about infidels, is we're talking about polytheists. So Muslims must strive with their lives for the cause of God. So it really is built into the religion. And as I was talking to David and Cindy before class, it seems to me that the Muslims who are looked upon as peaceful and as not at all being a threat are either denying what they actually fundamentally believe or they are cultural Muslims, just like so many people in America are cultural Christians. You know, you, you, yes, that's what I claim, but I don't live by it. You know, it's not anything that really means anything to me. David, I think, felt like he was in a very similar situation and that uh, his only hope was to flee. Although at, at the base of his thinking, of course, is ultimately his trust in God. I think all of us, no matter how difficult the situation may be and how ground down we may feel, we will come to that place where we ultimately find God to be our foundation. If we're true believers, I think that will always come out ultimately in the end. So what does David do? He leads his 600 men and their families to the city of Gath, where he had been before. Different king probably, but he goes to Gath. And, and he's like a medieval, medieval knight who is coming to, to give himself as a vassal to his suzerain, to, to this Lord. And he brings his, his men, his command, and he offers it to the service of Achish. He is giving his army, he is saying, to the service of this pagan king, this godless king. He moves his whole household, his two wives who are mentioned here, and the households of all, he moves them into the city of Gath, inside the walls of the city of Gath. So he's living in the heart of this pagan king's kingdom. Just as David had hoped, the scripture does tell us that Saul gave up the search. Well, he's off in, in Gath. I'm not going to go there to pursue him, so I'll just write him off at least for now. But if he ever comes out again, I'm just reading behind the lines here, I'll be after him again. Well, this, this whole chapter is, a, is kind of amazing in, in some of the things that David uh, does here. He establishes himself there and he seemingly presents himself to Achish as a trustworthy vassal, as, as someone who will serve the king well and, and someone in whom the king could, could trust. But after a while, he says to Achish, you know, it's a little bit tight here. It's a little crowded in this town with my 600 men and all their households uh, living in, in the city of Gath. Now, 
most of us have a tendency when we think city, we think Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York. These are little bitty towns. I mean, the, you, all you go over there today and you look at these, these tells where these cities were built and they're just a few acres. I mean, at the most, a hundred acres usually uh, for most of the towns. And, I mean, they called them cities usually because they had a wall around them. But the area inside the wall was, was fairly small and they didn't have little, you know, cute little huts with white picket fences around their yards, you know, and, and the oak tree for the kid to swing in because it was, bah, 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 you know, wall to wall, crowded situations. And so for David, it, I mean, David was a shepherd. He spent his whole life out in the boondocks on the backside of the desert and being hemmed in like this probably was becoming claustrophobic to him after a while. Certainly he reminded Achish of the undercurrents that were going on inside the city where there were people in the city who were talking behind the king's back saying, this king is crazy. He's got, he's got the giant killer right here and his army inside our city. And he's got an army of Israelites living in, the king has got to be nuts. And, and so I think it was uh, with, with those words and, and the words that maybe, maybe I should go out where it's not so cramped that he asked Achish to give him a city somewhere else. Give, him, give me a town out in the countryside where I will serve you out there. And so the king Achish gives him the town of Ziklag. Gath is right about up in there. Here's Ashkelon and here's Eglon. So, some of the sites of the Philistine towns are a little bit uncertain. Some of them are absolutely certain, like Gaza, obviously, and Ashkelon and Ashdod along the coast because the ruins are there and, and they, they've been identified. Some of the inland cities like Eglon and Gath, which is usually thought to be right up in there, there are tells there, but they have not positively been able to identify those sites as that name. There are dozens of tells in Israel and all over the Middle East, hundreds of them, that have yet to be identified exactly. And, and when they try to determine which one is which, of course, they do it archaeologically. Then they also go by the history of the name that is still used today for the place. And if they can trace it back as the name applied to the original place. But anyway, right up in here, Ziklag, again, is also only generically known as to its location. Its exact location has never been identified, but it was probably right about there. Here's Beersheba and about 10 miles or so to the northwest, right up in there, is believed to be where Ziklag was. And so David has asked for this town out on the frontier of Philistine control. Now Ziklag, where the scripture tells us, had been given to the tribe of Simeon. If you go back to Joshua chapter 19, it begins to list who got what in the conquest. You'll discover that Ziklag is mentioned as one of the cities given to the tribe of Simeon. The tribe of Simeon lived internally within the territory given to the tribe of Judah. Apparently, the Philistines had captured the town and probably many other towns uh, in that general area. And, and they may have partially depopulated it. it. It was very common in those days. You capture a town, you wipe out all the military age men or you carry them off into captivity. Probably Achish gave him the town to help guard the frontier because it is out on in, the, in the frontier area. Beersheba was still a, a Judean town, and uh, other Judean towns existed over here. So it was kind of right on the border between Judea and Philistia, 
And then, of course, it's also on the edge of the desert down here. So it's a, it's a border town. Whatever is the case, it appears that Achish didn't just say to David, okay, would you go out there and protect that town? He gave the town to David. He says, it's yours, David. Maybe as a thief, so to speak, but, but it was given to David. And that's why the scripture says in verse 6 that Ziklag became a possession of the kings of Judah. Well, David would be the king. And he, was, he possessed the town, so he brought it into Israel as his own private possession, you could say. Verse 7 of this particular chapter is one of the rarer statements of chronology that are, that are given in the uh, Old Testament. We're told that David lived in Philistia 16 months, a year and four months. That time period may incorporate all the way from the moment David first presented himself before Achish king of Gath to the very end of the book of 1 Samuel. Or it may just apply to this uh, event that we're talking about here. It's hard to say because it does say there in, in that particular verse that the number of Dave, days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. And he seems to be in the country of the Philistines all the way to the end of uh, 1 Samuel. So it gives us one little time frame. It's, it's, it's really the final time frame of David's fleeing from pursuit because soon Saul will be dead. Well, let's read on in chapter 27 here at verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For they were inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against Negev, the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremelites and against the Negev of the Kenites. And David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, lest they should tell about us, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his people Israel. Therefore he will become my servant forever. From our perspective, we could say that this passage has some very serious incongruities with what we think a godly man ought to be like or how he ought to act. What we have here is David on his own initiative going out and raiding against neighboring peoples and slaughtering the population. That seems like our having on September 10th ordered the bombing of Afghanistan, you know. Just go out there and just bomb everything. You know, that, it seems like a similar kind of an idea here. But it only seems that way, as we'll see. David was leading his men in devastating raids down into this area. So here we have Ziklag, right about up in here somewhere. And he's, he's punching down this way. Here you see the wilderness of Shur. It talks about on the way to Egypt. Here's Egypt over here. Right through here today, you have the Suez Canal that punches through here. And, and so here in, in this northern end of the Sinai Desert were lot, many different nomadic peoples living. And in this particular instance, the, the Gerzites, the Geshurites, and the Amalekites were the ones he was primarily interested in, probably living somewhere in this general area in here. Here's the Negev, which means south, the south land. 
which is mentioned several times in the passage here. Uh, Israel pretty much, the traditional Israel is from Dan to Beersheba, but of course frequently extended all the way down to Kadesh Barnea, uh, down here in the uh, wilderness of Zin. Of the people mentioned in this particular passage, one of them, the people known as the Gerzites, are only mentioned in this verse in all of Scripture. Therefore, what we know about them, we have to glean from that verse, which is virtually nothing, of course, except that they lived down there and that David attacked their villages and destroyed them. You know, that's, that's about what we know uh, about those people. On the other hand, the Geshurites are mentioned. And, and the Geshurites actually are one of two peoples with that same name. There are also were Geshurites who were living way up in here in the region that is known today as Syria. There were Geshurites living up there. And as we, as we look at the story of David as king over Israel, we discover him having dealings with those people. They are not the same Geshurites as these people who live down here. Were they related in some way? Well, we, we can't tell. There's no way of knowing if they were related at all. But there was a group of Geshurites that lived down here in the northern Sinai, which are in a part of this. And they are mentioned in Joshua. Let me just read a couple of verses in Joshua chapter 13 where they are mentioned. In chapter 13 of Joshua, the first verse, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and very much <laughs> of the land remains to be possessed. This is the, uh, is the land that remains, all the region of the Philistines and those of the Geshurites. And, and he mentions some others too. But the Geshurites were specifically mentioned as land yet remaining to be conquered that had not been conquered. That's kind of a key, as we're going to see, to why David did what he did. The Gerzites were probably somehow in allegiance with, related to, in association with the Geshurites. And so we have these people, and of course the Amalekites, a totally different people, who have been a gigantic pain to Israel uh, for hundreds of years. Well, because of the lateness of the hour, I don't think I'll go into the four reasons that I have identified for David making what would seem like David is just out butchering people because he wants to, uh, just because he wants to rip off their, their, their animals. What is David doing here? Well, I think I've identified at least four reasons why David made these raids. And as we study these, I think we come to realize that it wasn't just a wanton act of butchery, but that he was actually fulfilling uh, what God had ordered to be done long before and had never yet been fulfilled.